0: to the Space of Possibility podcast. This is John Driggs, your host. Well, today I'll be talking with the singer-songwriter and philosopher Graham Pemberton. I personally haven't explored Graham's music, but rather I stumbled upon him through the writing platform Medium, where he produces wonderfully thought-provoking articles about spirituality, religion, Jungian psychology, and mythology. In our conversation, we explore everything from the failure of materialistic thinking and scientism to science as a methodology and its epistemological roots, to the idea of God, spirituality, and religion, to Jungian psychology and the importance of dreams in better understanding ourselves and living a more fulfilled life, to the idea of the self in both the East and the West. More particularly, we explore the idea of the Buddhist term emptiness, a tricky and misleading word in the West, which can be clarified to mean the absence of an isolated, autonomous self, cut off from the rest of the world and its laws, its causes and conditions. In any case, I really enjoyed my conversation with Graham, and I hope you do too. Now, just one final thing. Graham asked me to make a correction to a book he recommends in the conversation. So, if you're interested in learning more about Jungian psychology, Graham lists several introductory books, one of which he called The Divided Self, which is actually titled The Undiscovered Self. Enjoy. Hey, Graham. Thank you for joining me today. It's really a real pleasure. I've uh, kind of had my eye on your writing uh, over the platform medium for some time. You know, you really have a intriguing, very interesting mind. You have a perspective and a depth that I don't think many people have. So I'm, I'm always interested to see your view on the world and some different philosophies that some interests we share so can you tell me a little bit about your intellectual and spiritual background Just tell me a bit about your journey and your interests
1: um how far back do you want to go back to uh, school and university or um yeah, no, sure. I'd love to know what you studied uh, at university. Okay. okay. Uh, well, at school, um, I was, my best subjects were languages. Um, I sort of excelled at French and Latin for a while um, for no obvious reason. I don't know why I, you know, they, they, they were, I found those relatively easy because French was my best subject at school. I went on to study at university, but that subsequently turned out to be a, a terrible mistake. I mean, I did it just because it was my best subject, not because it was, if sure. you want my true path as you might want to call it so um sure. i went into sort of a, a depressive phase then obviously in retrospect because i wasn't following my true path and uh, right. i became attracted to some gloomy philosophies like um sartrean existentialism albert Camus, and the sort of plays of samuel beckett because i was studying french that's the sort of stuff that i was being um, made to read and stuff like that. And uh, this uh, sort of ended up in a sort of, sort of gloomy, uh, atheistic sort of worldview. Um, and, but then eventually, you could say the depression and uh, the suffering became so bad that I decided to look inside myself, so to speak. I did, did a sort of personal psychoanalysis and that sort of triggered a what you would call a, a big spiritual awakening Um mm when all sorts of weird things started happening, which sort of persuaded me that my previous views were completely wrong.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, there's often something rooted in uh, pain that will cause us to really look inside and explore the edges of ourselves and our understanding. And it takes a lot of courage, I think, to, you know, Uproot and change a belief system like that. So, hats off to you.
1: Yeah. Well, I was I was forced to do it because of the experiences that I was having. I mean, things things that were happening were so extraordinary that uh, I mean, it was no longer tenable to hang on to. You know, to my previous uh, previous worldviews and uh, influences. Yeah. So your ex- Experience and your reason kind of forced you out of these do you want to speak
0: to any of these experiences
1: I forget, but, um it, it seemed to be at the time i mean and still remains i mean a great, it was a great lesson in what you call Jungian psychology it was obviously personal analysis which is something that psychoanalysts and analytical psychologists do i was having big dreams which i was beginning to learn to understand so dream analysis i was doing a parapsychology course, an ESP course, where some very weird things started happening. So the idea that um, the brain generates consciousness became a completely ridiculous notion, which um, um, parapsychology disproved. I was having uh, massive synchronicities, you know, extraordinary synchronicities in the Jungian sense, um, which clearly were impossible from a materialist perspective. And then um something else that Jung was very keen on was the um the, the Taoist book, the oracle book, the I Ching. I had a, mm-hmm. an extraordinary, extraordinary encounter with the I Ching, you know, which blew my mind, you know. So it was a six-month period of my mind being blown over and over again. So in yeah. the end, I was Incredible. I was changed.
0: Wow. Yeah, um there's just a few things there I kind of wanna I wanna plant some flags uh first. Carl Jung is someone that's been quite an influence it appears for you and you write a lot about psychoanalysis and kind of that school of thought and um, Yes. Yeah, it's large, a big part of why I wanted to talk with you. I don't have a lot of experience in that arena, but it's kind of been there this for much of my time in my own uh, philosophical journey. Um, you know, it's just my interests have kind of put me on a different path, but you know, our time is limited. So it's like, okay, how do I prioritize this? I want to get to young, but you know, so I, I do want to open up that discussion. Um, and then another point I wanted to grab there was this materialistic thinking, which, I appreciate in a lot of your writing you keep people focused on this lens that the West, in my view, needs to kind of work their way out of. You know, we think consciousness arises in the brain, which is a a kind of bizarre thought because isn't the brain arising in consciousness? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a little fidgeting. I think our culture needs there and hopefully you can bring some of that to the light in our discussion. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, actually why don't we go ahead and maybe well initially we were kind of talking about your journey is there anything else you wanted to speak to there
1: before we move on? Um uh, only that um uh, that my experience has led me, obviously, to be converted to, converted to a, a view, a worldview of what we would loosely call spirituality. So I've been studying all the various traditions ever since. Um, you know, I've looked at the Eastern traditions a bit. I'm not a specialist in any of them. You know, but I, I've read as far as I can. I've read about Western traditions, Eastern traditions, Native American traditions, and stuff. So I've tried to become as informed as I can about um, all the various world traditions.
0: Yeah, in your writing that shows you're uh you have a breadth you know and that also i mean you say you're not a specialist in any of them but you know there's a depth that shows in that breath as well and i'd like to think so yes i like to think so yeah i mean you're i think your interests clearly have driven you there and you're a seeker and you're committed to truth and yeah i really value that and appreciate that in you Um. So yeah, why don't we go ahead and kind of kick off the conversation with this materialistic versus spiritual thinking, and maybe you can speak to it in terms of your own experience and your own discovery and, you know, how you came to make this shift.
1: Um, well, you were referring to the um, idea that the brain emerges, so arises within consciousness, Um So that that hits one of the fundamental um, um, tenets of materialism. Uh, We have um, David Chalmers coining the term the hard problem, which means, in fact, nobody can possibly explain how the brain generates consciousness. It's it's the hard problem. Despite that, various, uh, well, you have neuroscientists like um, David Eagleman and Anil Seth, who are working in their labs and they say things like, I've been working for 20 years trying to figure out how this three pounds of whatever it is, you know, suddenly becomes us you know and 20 years later there's still no closer to the truth that's david eagleman and annals Seth, you know persists spending loads of money and research trying to figure out how the brain generates consciousness um and he refuses to accept anything what he calls mystical or magical explanations i.e spiritual explanations so he's stuck there spending all this research money you know getting no closer to, to the truth, and you have um, philosophers like Daniel Dennett, who starts from the position of atheism and Darwinism, and then writes a book called *Consciousness Explained*, you know, which is, I you know, merely how you might explain consciousness if atheism and Darwinism were true, but you know, bears no relation to um, solving the problem of consciousness. Then you can go on to um, uh, something which is. Um, uh, interesting, is that certain philosophers and scientists are going in the direction of panpsychism, um, right. which is sort of basically saying that uh, since there is no solution to the hard problem of consciousness, we therefore assume that matter, a fundamental attribute of, of matter, is consciousness. Um, which is a step in the right direction because it's equating or you know, associating matter with consciousness. Uh, but possibly in our view, it doesn't go far enough. Um, it's, it's still saying that there is this thing called matter and it is conscious, even though we can't understand how this can be and um, what this actually means and whether our socks are conscious and whether you know <laughs> our toenails are conscious and things like that. So it's just a, a way of trying to, they, they, they understand that materialism is completely untenable and yet they can't quite get to the spiritual point of view, which is that everything is a manifestation of consciousness
0: right yeah the panpsychism you're starting from the fact of consciousness which i think is a, a more useful starting point if you're starting from the material it, you're caught there's a wall you're you've got the hard problem right
1: so yeah yes. i think
0: panpsychism starts you on the right foot
1: yeah okay. it takes you in, quite di- take you in the right direction but it doesn't go far enough in in my view
0: yeah, um, well, let's explore that a little bit. Um, I'd love to hear your your views on that and how we can um, kind of move forward there.
1: Well, uh, the, the t- taking panpsychism further, and you end up with what's called idealism, the idea that everything is a manifestation of consciousness. And the um, modern philosopher who's most, uh, the, the biggest exponent of that idea is perhaps Bernardo Kastrup. Well, he's. I mean, I've got a pile of his books here. I mean, he's got thing. The titles of some of his books are Why Materialism is Baloney, Dreamed Up Reality, Reality um, The Idea of the World, um, Science Ideated, i.e., you know, science as ideas rather than as material. And he's also interested in Jung. He's interested in all sorts of things. He's interested in myth. He's interested in the Eastern traditions. And he is actually a scientist. He comes from a scientific background. So he is. Mm-hmm. As bringing a vast amount of knowledge and thinking and personal experience to his book. So he is currently my favorite philosopher. I love to see
0: merging of scientific thinking with, you know, the
1: more open spiritual lens. Yeah. That is one of the goals of my writing. That is one of the goals of my writing.
0: Yeah. So actually, that might be a segue into another interest of yours that I see. And that is connecting the spiritual with quantum physics do you want to speak a little bit to that
1: yes well i've (laughs) I've written a lot about that on medium Uh, i mean i followed the um the trend of uh various quantum physicists who seem to be um going in the more idealistic direction i.e., that consciousness is the is the fundamental um background um i've actually got some uh quotes here let's have a look um uh, so um in the early days of um quantum physics um i was
0: gonna say yeah can can we start maybe with some history there and yeah, the yeah. Niels Bohr camp you know versus yeah. einstein and kind of the two camps oh, gotcha. and,
1: yeah okay uh, well um i wasn't planning to go quite back as far as as, as okay. einstein um who was obviously against quantum physics for most of his life he was arguing against it um, for most of his life and it seems that he was proved wrong he found um he didn't like quantum physics and uh, found it um uh, too weird for his taste um so the the it's that it's already the 1920s the first generation of the physicists were in effect saying things like um uh, that matter is an illusion which is you no know, what. Something which any Buddhist will tell you, or any Hindu will probably tell you, and so um, so they were looking for the basic building blocks of matter and devise these experiments to get down to atoms, subatomic particles, and they started coming out with statements like this. Is one from um, Sir James Jeans? He said, "The um, the universe is beginning to look less and less like a machine and more and more like a great thought." Yeah, that was oh. his um, his conclusion. Um, So Arthur Eddington said that um, when you get down to the basic building blocks of matter, there's nothing there, there are just shadows. And he's obviously referring there to Plato's Allegory of the Cave. They're they're looking at shadows on the wall, they're not looking at um, anything real. And um, Werner Heisenberg said that um, when you get down to the the, the basic building blocks of matter, um, what we're seeing are ideas in, in the platonic sense, like Plato's ideas. And the best quote of all was um, Max Planck, who said, this is, I've got this written down here. It says, all matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force, which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force, the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. I mean, Mm. that says it. No, that says it clearly. And those are the early quantum physicists. And then, um, uh, well, uh, there was a sort of a next generation, um, David Bohm. Bohm started work earlier than some of the other people, as far as I can tell, but there was a sort of a a, a starting trend in the 1970s. Um, Well, the first book that I'm aware of was by um, Fred Allen Wolfe. Um, which was um, called Space, Time and Beyond. And that was soon followed up by the most famous of these books, um, was by Fritjof Capra, uh, The Tower of Physics, you know, in which his discoveries in physics led him to compare um, the discoveries with the worldview of the Eastern religions. So he had a chapter on Hinduism, one on Buddhism, one on Zen, and one on um, Taoism. So he found lots and lots of comparisons in the worldview of those Eastern religions with, um, uh, with his perception of quantum physics. And his book, he says, was, was read over by Heisenberg who approved it, you know. And uh, so um, he, he was standing in that tradition, going back as far as the, one of the great founders of um, quantum physics. And then um, Bohm, thinking along the same lines, you know, came up with his theories of um, the material world as the explicate order but it's generated by various levels of implicate orders, you know, coming from art. So this, this is like a scientific language for spiritual traditions, the different yeah. levels and hierarchies of being that you find in Hinduism and uh, other esoteric traditions. Um, so he was um, saying the same sort of thing in, um, in, uh, in scientific language. I did. Um, I did um, once. Was fortunate to be in a lecture that he gave once. Uh, I couldn't understand it at all at the time, but uh, oh, I you was,
0: met uh, Bohm in person. At I did I was,
1: I attended a lecture that he gave back in oh, the ninety s. Yes, um, I was at the time. I was um, involved in the Psychosynthesis Institute, and they <laughs> um, at their summer schools. They invited him to speak to us because obviously they were impressed by his thinking and thought yeah. it him. um with their ideas and so yes i did Um, i have to say it was after a long hot day in the evening and even though our our leader um announced him as somebody who was able to communicate his ideas you know very forcefully to to the public i I have to say it went above our heads most of it at the time sure sure i've subsequently got much more into him having read his works
0: right right um so how old were you when
1: oh the um, how old was I then? I was about um uh, 32, 30, something like that,
0: 32, 33 okay. when I when, Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, did he hold quite the presence? Uh
1: no, not especially no. He he okay. didn't know. No, he wasn't okay. that charismatic, no. But I mean, obviously he was a great mind, you know, and he right. it, having to talk to people way, way below his level, you know. So uh, fascinating.
0: Okay, um maybe let's transition to do you want to introduce this term scientism?
1: Uh, well, scientism, uh, well, I, I won't go into it in great detail. I mean, it's got different meanings for different people. Um, so you'll see on medium, you'll see various definitions of it and people sure. using the word sure. in different ways. But um, the, the, the 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 way in which I normally use it and understand it is when it becomes like a quasi-religion. It's like science is worshipped, you know, um, as, as like an ultimate dream. It's a bit like, you know, the... Pe- Christians think the Bible is the absolute truth. And it's like when people, various people think that science is the absolute truth and everything else that's not proven by the scientific method, you know, should be rejected and is nonsense or, you know, fantasy or illusion or something like that. So it's when, when science is exalted beyond its proper status is how I use the term. Yeah. It
0: really um, spoils what, science is it makes it dogmatic and authoritative and
1: absolutely yeah absolutely that I is am, the problem
0: yeah and i'm seeing that a lot in our culture you know people are tossing around well this is science like it's just some authority like okay well can you tell me what science is you know like what what does that mean to you or is, are we just taking this dogmatically or so uh- Maybe we can speak a little bit about epistemology here and kind of bring in what that scientific method or way of thinking is. And I don't know your own personal epistemology, so if you want to open that up just to that field in uh, general.
1: Well, in, in very simple terms, I mean, science is meant to be um, a search for the objective truth about the nature of the universe. Um, but science, it seems, can only... Measuring according to the scientific method, it can only measure and do experiments on physical reality. Um, I mean, others, there may be more advanced people. I've got some, something here that I can um, talk to you about afterwards. Um, if we're talking about moving beyond this, uh, this view, but um, so therefore, that's what science deals with it deals with how the material world works, and yet, um, sometimes that's taken to mean. And the material that's that's all that science can do therefore we reject anything that's beyond that we reject any notion of anything um immaterial mm-hmm. supernatural paranormal parapsychological because all we can deal with in experiments you know is is the material world so that yeah. means to my view is that we only that science is only dealing with a very limited um portion of the of the universe you
0: know, just yeah what,
1: yeah kind and of so that
0: degrasse tyson view yeah, that sort of yeah, that's meaningless and yeah, yeah, you know sort of takes stuff, yeah. all of consciousness out of it it's like wait a second i think we're missing we're missing yeah. a few things here yeah,
1: yeah. but that's not I mean so so what, what we're looking for is i believe a reunification of science and the best of spirituality so it has to be said that there are some um scientists who are moving beyond that there's obviously um what's called the new paradigm in scientists, you know, based upon the um, thinking of Thomas Kuhn and his new paradigms. um, Interesting. Yeah. So basically at the same time, we have the old paradigm of materialistic science. We have new paradigm scientists who are much more involved in spirituality. I've got a book here. Um, It's by a lady called Gail Kimball. Um, and she's done um, three volumes and the one i've got in front of me is called the mysteries of reality and it's dialogues with visionary scientists and she's also um before that um, done two earlier books in the same series which are called uh, the mysteries of healing dialogues with doctors and scientists and the mysteries of knowledge beyond our senses so she's written or no, edited brought together a trilogy of books Of um, what she calls visionary scientists, i.e., what we would call new paradigm scientists, you know, who no longer work within the materialistic paradigm, but are open, you know, open to all sorts of um, weirder.
0: Yeah, I was gonna piggyback there. I think uh, earlier you referenced that science has kind of people view it as an exploration of purely the material world. I think that's a limiting view of science. And I think that's something we need to knock down move fast. Absolutely. And yeah, bring it into this in the beginning we spoke about this materialistic framework. We need to look at science in this new spiritual lens. You know, we can still talk about the physical world and you know, we can still build rocket ships and you know, we, that's great, but we need a new framing here that expands scientific thinking. Are you familiar with Karl Popper?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I know the name. I'm, I wouldn't say I've read everything he's written, but I know the name and I, I'm aware of some of his thinking, yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, because you spoke to Kuhn, who he was kind of he kind of came after Popper and kind of picked up yes. on a lot of his ideas and kind of yes. reframed a bit. Um, but yeah, Popper is a very humble philosopher in his thinking. Uh, No ultimate truths. You know, it's a conjectural based. We put forward hypotheses and we can test those against experimentation, observation, reason, uh, our own direct experience, whatever it may be. But I think we can carry that epistemological framework, which kind of is actually rooted in the ancient Greeks, the Ionians, which I believe you've spent a uh, deal of time exploring um
1: a little a little bit yes i mean the um the uh, the greek philosophers i mean the unfortunate thing is that these some of the interesting ones the pre-socratics much of their writing has been lost so we only have yeah, fragments yeah. of Her- heraclitus we only have um Parmenides uh, yeah, Parmenides Thales and stuff like that we um we have you know just a few Often it's other people quoting them and stuff like that so much right. Great thinking has been lost, um, Anaximander, those, those sort of people, unfortunately. Yeah. But we yeah, still have I some know. idea. We still have some idea of what they were thinking, right. um, from quotes from others and some of their fragments that are left over and things like that. But they're right. very, they're very, very interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think they understood this idea that it's not just the material world in this kind of thinking. You know, some people yes. interpret them as quite literal. But no, no they, they are much more in a spiritual lens, That's,
1: I believe. Absolutely, absolutely. And then that was sort of got lost a bit. Um, Plato was sort of like a, a bridge between. Plato was like, um I wouldn't say the last of, but um, uh, carried on the spiritual tradition, but was slightly um, rejecting people like Parmenides. Um, he sort of um, relegated him. Uh, but, Plato was obviously clearly very spiritual and then right. it started going more in a material direction with aristotle who aristotle, wasn't, yeah. wasn't a, he wasn't a materialist in the modern sense but um, he um, um uh he was moving away from plato you know um to, to focus more upon the material world and that sort of stuff and uh, and it, it, you could argue it went downhill from there
0: yeah no I. There was, re- there
1: was a revival there was a revival in the renaissance when um, some of these ancient ideas were you know in, in in italy in the whenever it was 14th 13th century some of these um, ideas were revolved with the help of some of the islamists um uh, some of the islamic philosophers um helped to resurrect plato and um what
0: well, um, time period are you speaking to kind of the golden age of islam
1: well, it would be well. It would be a, about nine hundred, ten hundred, eleven hundred, yeah. something like that. Though in that sort right. of period, they they were translating the Greeks and um and reintroducing, you know, keeping those ideas alive. Right. Led their way to um Renaissance Italy. Yeah, I'm
0: curious uh to hear kind of your perspective or opinion on Plato, because I agree Aristotle did kind of. Take us in a very different direction. You know, he was obsessed with kind of the definition game, which may have started with Socrates, because, you know, Socrates turns inward and he starts exploring, well, like, what are these concepts that aren't material that we can't grab? What is truth? What is beauty? What is goodness? And starts exploring these. But Socrates seemed to hold more of the Ionian view, that kind of humble way of thinking, well, we can put forward an idea and we can carve away at our understanding of it and keep getting closer to truth in a sense, but we can't actually get our hands on it. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, Um, so so, Socrates was was there sort of questioning everything, wasn't he? He was challenging people and trying to get people to challenge their own belief systems and uh, to think more deeply, you know, as far as I understand it.
0: Right. And so then Aristotle came along and we'll get back to Plato, but Aristotle, his epistemology seemed to be, he seemed to hold the idea. And tell me if you have a different view of him, but it looked like he wanted to essentially build up a dictionary. He was in the, uh, you know, Francis Bacon came later and the John Locke, you know, the blank slate theory where our sensory organs just, They're imprinted on. So it's kind of this passive thing where the world is just telling us what things are rather than this creative. No, we're actually projecting models of the world uh, and ideas. And, you know, it, it seemed like he actually understood that our words are conventional, you know, that we kind of build up this relative view of things. You know, he understood that things are in relation to one another. But He seemed if you, you know, sat with or had experience of, say, womanhood enough, you would finally come to its real true definition. And if we built up a dictionary, uh, a big enough dictionary in this way, we could unlock the truth to the universe, which I think was a dangerous turning point um i don't know if you share that view of aristotle if you want to add um, what you sense
1: um your- I, I i would have to say I, i've not read enough aristotle to um to comment on what you say but uh, what you sound sounds very reasonable to me um i'm not uh, familiar enough with his writings to uh, to to offer offer a judgment but what you say sounds very reasonable and my understanding is that um he was a student of plato but um you know obviously had some had some influence upon him but um he wanted yeah. to turn in a, in, a, in a different direction and right. was more concerned was, was thought that um plato was too otherworldly you know and right. too too spiritual you could say in a very in a very simplistic sort of phrase but um and wanted to focus more upon um uh, the material levels of, of reality yeah uh, which is great because mean, that you could say was the beginning possibly the foundation of the modern science things work and stuff like that which is great you know we need to know right. that too we need to do that too but right. we, we just need to bring the spiritual back and reject the background to it yep agreed yeah
0: so let's uh move into plato a little bit because he might be the most fascinating character in history to me he is <laughs> wow what a unique thinker he's yeah. very original
1: Yeah. And fortunately, unfortunately, unlike many people from that time, we actually have a lot of his writings still, still available to us. You know, we, we actually have many volumes of his writings. Right.
0: Yeah. So, um, do you want to kind of give a background on Plato? Uh,
1: Well, I mean, again, I'm not, I haven't uh, read him in great detail, but I mean, he's obviously, um, He's obviously a deeply spiritual person. Um, he believes in spiritual realities. He has these ideas of uh, Platonic ideas or forms, eternal forms, which are similar to Jung's views on archetypes um, and these e- eternal ideas. Um, it's not obviously, it's not probably not quite the same thing, but there's obviously some kind of um, uh, similarity, some kind of parallel. Um, you find the same sort of idea in um, the Kabbalah in Kabbalistic thinking of this, what you call an archetypal level of ideas and creation. So it's like the, you might loosely call them divine ideas. So um, yeah. in, in Plato, what Plato called. So that that's his big contribution. And I mean, as far as it's widely said that he studied in Egypt, so he was initiated into the mysteries of um, Egypt by, um, by the Egyptian priests. Uh, that's obviously much later than the original Egyptian priests who were uh, operating two thousand years earlier. Um, but uh, whoever the Egyptian priests were at that time, apparently he studied there, you know, and, uh, and was initiated into some of the mysteries of Egyptian religion there, and um, brought it back and i think it, I mean, he was a bit later than pythagoras wasn't he but obviously was in that same sort of tradition as, as pythagoras
0: yeah about a hundred years or more after pythagoras yeah,
1: yeah. but um, i'm sure it was influenced by that sort of tradition I mean, yeah. oh certainly
0: you can see the pythagorean influence everywhere there yeah pythagoras was an interesting character himself also very yeah. original
1: and if you, um, uh, if we bring it forward a long way to the, um, uh, to the 20th century, um, that he obviously was a sort of a, a, Platonist, but, um, if you remember that famous, um, expression by Albert North Whitehead, he said, all of Western philosophy are, but footnotes to Plato. Reference to Plato. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, obviously well, he would say that as a plate, he would say that as a Platonist, but you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's tease this idea out a little bit. Or you brought Jung into this. So let's uh, kind of explore those parallels with Plato. And then you can kind of move into this psychoanalysis and this influence yeah. in modern psychology. Why don't we take a break? Let uh, our listeners take a small break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Just to recap, we're talking about kind of the foundations of really Western epistemology, beginning with the ancient Ionians um, moving into Plato and Aristotle. And specifically right now, I want to speak a little bit more about Plato's epistemology and how it kind of changed the course of Western thinking and relate Plato's Philosophy with Carl Jung. So, I, I have a, a dear friend who I've been philosophizing with, you know, for we, we've hiked over a thousand miles together just exploring philosophy. And he loves Plato and uh, his own particular philosophy is in Christian esoteric school. I don't know if you're familiar with it but it's it comes from Rudolf Steiner what are you familiar with
1: Um I know who Rudolf Steiner is yes I'm familiar with him
0: Okay so anthroposophy
1: Anthroposophy yes which is an offshoot of theosophy
0: Yeah and he's got me he's confident that I misunderstand Plato so I'm happy you know if you <laughs> want to dispel that or uh,
1: I I doubt it I doubt it no <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
0: No, so I just want to kind of bring that in. I don't want to pretend like I have any authority on Plato, but you know, I
1: yeah, neither do I. Neither do I. No.
0: Yeah, uh, but I've read most of his works and you know studied him quite a bit. And Karl Popper is actually quite the critic, and you know, my that's my wheelhouse, epistemology. Karl Popper. So there's Plato has been in my Arena of study for a long time. And what I see when we get to Plato is I almost like to think of it as turning this bag. If you reach in and grab a bag or a ball and flip it, flip it inside out. He almost reversed the whole foundation for epistemological thinking. Um, and you alluded to it earlier in this. Kind of idealistic realm, um, uh, spiritual way of thinking. So I think there was a big improvement in our philosophy and epistemological thinking with Plato, but I worry that he almost set up this idea of ultimate truth, which Aristotle fell into. Um, Now, I don't know if Plato himself became what i think of as a victim to this way of thinking to me that he actually thought in the socratic way that we can get closer to truth but we can't ever quite capture it do you want to speak a little bit to this idealistic realm
1: <laughs> well um what can i say i mean i agree uh, it's possible i mean the Term enlightenment, ultimate enlightenment, suggests that it is possible to realize ultimate truth, but most of us are obviously swinging around uh, <laughs> a lot lower than that, and uh, all we can do is um, figure things out the best we can. So, I mean, to um, start criticizing Plato, I mean, he's got he's created one spiritual worldview, um, anthroposophy is another, but they are still. Addressing the same sort of things, they're still talking about the the other realms, the higher, if I may use that word, the higher realms, other uses, other yes, like that sort yes. of stuff. Yeah, and as are most spiritual systems. I mean. Buddhism right. claims to you know be talking about the different levels via meditative experience, you know, you penetrate other realms and then you start describing the Christian, yeah, so, yeah, so everybody everybody's doing it. Everybody's right. doing it. Um, right. um, right. um so uh the, the question is: I mean, as you say, if you want me to address the question of idealism again, I mean, uh God is however you understand God. I mean, I think that was on your list of topics to talk about what yeah, we understand. Right. Um, um uh, it's ultimate consciousness. I mean, the ultimate consciousness, which of which the universe is a manifestation, would one way be looking at God. So, um, according to spiritual traditions with which you're unfamiliar, I mean, everything that exists is a manifestation of the ultimate consciousness, and therefore, what we perceive as matter is really consciousness uh, and some form of consciousness at whatever level. That's what idealism means to me um and uh, i'm not familiar with any spiritual tradition which denies that i mean you could argue that christianity um ordinary conventional christianity um it denies that it thinks that god created the world or something like that but um uh, i I would suggest that it doesn't really understand what it means when it says that i mean it's uh it's interpreted interpreted it far too literally
0: Yeah, and I think you find that in all religions, you know, you can meet people that hold those concepts literally or metaphorically, you know. So, yeah, that's not limited to Christianity, but yeah, I appreciate you opening up this less literal, more open view of God. So, yeah, that opens up an interesting question. So, it's tricky when I... I've kind of, it sounds like I've been critical against ultimate truths, right? But as you allude to, sure, there is, we can penetrate this ultimate. And I think all wisdom traditions and religions are kind of pointing us in this direction. And the way, yeah, I kind of view that and I come from a Christian background, myself, uh, my community, my home. Um, but you know, in my own philosophical journey, I relate best with Buddhism and the language and the frames they use. And, you know, of course this isn't an exclusive path to this ultimate, but in this framework, yeah, we kind of have these two worlds we can think of the, relative conceptual world where we're exploring these ideal realm of forms and Plato's language. Um, You know, we associate with others and with chairs and cars and all these things in the world. So we can't deny that aspect of reality. It's there. We're operating with it.
1: That's where we are. Yes.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, there's almost this paradox when we look past those concepts and we meet the direct experience of the world or of consciousness of God. That all kind of dissolves or collapses. And we, meet this interbeing this single entity i don't know if you want to add anything additional to kind of that view for our listeners
1: Um, okay oh gosh uh uh well it's uh this what you call this single entity yes i mean that's the, the the big question i mean according to well various spiritual traditions um beyond this one single entity there is this kind of ultimate Lucy what's called nothingness so the ultimate ground of being is a great emptiness or nothingness and the great mystery is that this complete nothingness also manifests itself as a total oneness so the 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 great oneness is some kind of manifestation of the the nothingness Um, that would be true in Kabbalah Um, I believe it's sort of true in Hinduism Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly how it's expressed in Buddhism because Buddhism is sort of an offshoot of Hinduism, which obviously is tra- challenging it or trying to move away from it in some sense. Um, it's fascinatingly since Jung is one of um, our big topics, um, um, when Jung was, if I, you may use the word, loosely forced by some spirits that were knocking on the doors of his house to <laughs> write down lots of thoughts, his famous Seven Sermons to the Dead, his opening statement was exactly that. There is this pleroma, pleroma which is both nothingness and fullness mm. is both, both these two things. So, these, this Basilides, who he claimed he was channeling, or worse to that effect, um, um, he opened his, his statement, his statement about the nature of the universe in exactly those terms. This great nothingness, which is, you have to say, is the ultimate ground of being, you know, manifests this oneness, which is the creative source of being. So, that's the, the best way of seeing God. But then the people start, um, Christians start then arguing about whether it's a person, uh, the creator is personal, the theistic and stuff like that. Um, I have arguments, discussions with people on medium about, um, this concept of God and they, they criticize me because it's not the Christian viewpoint and, think um, things like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. according to Christianity, it's a personal, theistic creator God. Um, um, I think that's maybe allegory. I'm not. Modern, really, I don't see it makes a huge difference to us, but um, that's how most other spiritual traditions perceive, perceive God is this, this great oneness, you know, of which everything is a manifestation.
0: Right.
1: It's also true in, in the Tao Te Ching, in Taoism as well. Um, in the, in, I've got the quote, there is um in Taoism, uh, yes, so in the Tao Te Ching, there is this nameless thing, this great mystery, which is the Tao. And that's described as the beginning of heaven and earth. So heaven and earth, everything it is, is comes from this nameless mystery. And yet the named is the mother of 10,000 things, therefore the material universe. Okay. So there is this nameless mystery, which is the source of everything there is, heaven and earth, but it has to become the named before it can, um, before it can manifest the universe. Right. That's another tradition in which that idea you know, reoccurs.
0: Right. So let's bring it into maybe a more practical discussion for our listeners. And I think you may have, with the psychoanalysis and Jungian philosophy, have some very practical uh,
1: advice for the (laughs) listeners. Oh gosh. Uh, you think that? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure whether I do or I don't. Uh, maybe. Uh, well, um, I mean, it goes back to um, the ancient Greeks where we were started self-knowledge. Know, know yourself. Was that the above the Oracle at Delphi or something like that? Oracle at uh, Delphi, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, so man, know thyself. I mean, so going inwards, knowing your own personality. Knowing why you think, I mean, everything, I mean, why do we think the things we do? Why are we attracted to certain philosophies? I mean, we don't know whether they're true or not, but there's something about our personality, our psyche, um, um, which leads us in certain directions. It leads us to make certain life choices. I mean, um, if you start with Freud, then he would say that we're driven by Various, well driven by various drives treat as they are in german um so there are impulses instincts drives and stuff like that so much of what we do as any modern neuroscientist will tell you is they often say we have no free will whatsoever we have this um the, we're driven to do these certain things but you could argue one spiritual task is to you know analyze our own it's to try and free our consciousness from these drives from these instincts from these um manifestations of Complexes and things like that, as Jung will call them, so we try to separate con- um, consciousness and analyzing and, uh, go into our own being to understand exactly how, our, how it how, how we're working and then we can that can try we can be beginning to try to free ourselves and as I was saying earlier, I was unconsciously for no really good reason attracted to you know gloomy existentialist philosophies precisely because i have made an, uh, an error in my in my life choices. so I became gloomy of my own error not because these there's any truth in these philosophies so it's it's easy to see how you can be led astray by your own illusions yeah and therefore by going in into yourself and analyzing your life and uh, your the patterns you know that uh, reoccur you can um eventually see your way out of it and that's basically what um, a psychoanalysis was uh, really Freud's system. Um, Jung called it analytical psychology in order to distinguish himself um, from that. Um, but that's what he would be doing with his, with his patients and um, his analyzants, you know, he would be, you know, trying to explore their inner stuff. And um, one of the greatest helps um, are our dreams. I mean, Jung was enormously into dreams as um, messages from the psyche, from the unconscious, you know, helpful messages to help us, sort out where we are, giving us um, insight into our problems and, um, and stuff like that. So, uh, that would be my most useful practical advice. Anybody that doesn't study their dreams or try to interpret them, start trying to do it. Pay, that's, attention. That's, pay, pay attention to your dreams. Cause that's, that's your, let's loosely call it your, you can call it the self. Um, other people will call it the higher self you might call it the soul it's some higher source of wisdom you know, which is trying to communicate with you unfortunately it communicates in the language of some very complex symbols which aren't always easy yeah. to understand but nevertheless for better or worse that is the language of dreams symbolism well, is the language yeah of what, else, what
0: else what yeah. else do we have right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i think it, what's interesting with dreaming you know if we take a look at Okay, what's the difference between waking life and dream life? And
1: <laughs> some would well, say very, very little.
0: Very some little. Say,
1: the brain is doing much life. of the same yeah. thing, but
0: oh. some some
1: some spiritual people actually say this world is a dream. We we're living when we're oh, when we're awake, absolutely. we're living in a dream. We're living in God's dream, in fact. We're living in God's dream. Absolutely. And when it we're dreaming, we're living in a different yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh but so the one thing i wanted to point out there is that our senses so the input that we're getting from our environment is turned off so we are kind of rather than this external stimuli yeah we are pure yeah. us or yeah. creator
1: yeah. we're much more open to the the higher levels when we're asleep yes
0: yeah what is it that we're really doing or creating or wanting or seeking and yeah so I think there is certainly some deep wisdom in our dream life and I think the more we can kind of dissolve the barriers between me I you know the one here while I'm awake you know dissolve that border between you know that sleeping me, you know, who's dreaming in these fanciful worlds. Um we can kind of bring those together and kind of keep that stream of consciousness going. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. So earlier I spoke to my interest in Young, but I just have so many interests that it's hard to prioritize, you know. So I'm happy to kind of get your view and perspective on that.
1: Yeah. Well well for you, I mean dreams were the key. I mean somebody has a problem they come to him and say tell me your dream you I know mean, that's the that's the starting point
0: yeah. and his
1: his greatest follower marie louise von france was also you know totally in tune with that idea she's written a wonderful book called um well i say it's some inter, a series of interviews with her uh called the way of the dream you know it's a, a wonderful book hmm.
0: yeah um so his Another popular one, the little red book, right. That's a popular one to analyze your own dreams from, you know.
1: Uh, well, the, do you, do you mean the red book? The red the book red is, book. sorry. Yeah. Well, um, that well, it's not, no, the, the red book is, um, is his extraordinary account of his journey into the unconscious, the underworld as you would call it. Oh, okay. Um, so this is his own personal journey. It's his own, pers- his, his own personal journey, which he, okay. at the time, he didn't want published. He sort of oh, probably didn't even, want it, didn't even want it published after his death, but it mm. has subsequently been published. It's his account of his own journey into the underworld of the psyche when he, there, other people thought he went mad. You no, know, he other people said right. he was psychotic, schizophrenic, um, but all he was really doing was journeying into the underworld, as in the ancient, hero myths, you know, you Odysseus right. or Aeneas, they, as part of their journey, the hero's journey, they, yeah. Yeah, the hero's journey, they have this uh, one event when they descend into the underworld for whatever reason, you know, and then seek to return, you know, so it's it's obviously, it's an essential part of the journey. And that was Jung's own descent into the underworld. And the, his, his mm-hmm. account of the figures that he met there, the dialogues he had, and it's, it's quite extraordinary. absolutely extraordinary and because he didn't want to be thought you know too spiritual too mystic he wanted to conceal it he wanted to um convey the insights that he got in his more psychological loosely speaking scientific works he didn't want to be considered a complete nutter therefore he right he he, wanted um, to maintain a reputation yes that's right and therefore he didn't want this book published but now fortunately a hundred years later, you know, we, we have it, you know, it's a massive, massive book, you know, with it, his paintings of the figures that he met. And it's extraordinary. Wow. I mean, one of the, one of the first, um, one of the first figures he met was the, of the prophet Elijah, mm. you know, with, with whom he dialogued. And I mean, the most significant thing is he encountered an inner guide, a spiritual guide, whom he called Philemon, and even though this, it didn't really exist in the material world. He claimed that he was, it was as if he was walking from down his garden with him, having conversations, and Philemon was teaching him about the nature of the psyche and giving him all sorts of insights for his work and things like that. So it's a, uh, you can understand why he might not have wanted it to be released Absolutely, into the yeah. thi- scientific community at sure. the time. Yeah, sure,
0: that's interesting. I uh well, first before I uh speak to this. Can you recommend to our listeners, if they're interested in Jung, a book that would be a good
1: entrance point for them? For, for Jung? Oh, well, um, uh, well, a good starting point. I mean, it is sort of semi-autobiography. You could read about his own account of his life. That's memories, dreams, reflections. Um, uh, another book, which he, um, uh, was near the end of his life. He, um, he was asked, I think, to produce a simpler account of his ideas for the general public rather than the more specialized um, psychiatrists and psychological community. And so he and three or four of his followers came up with this book called Man and His Symbols, which so he wrote mm. the first chapter and then, um, he some of his other followers, um, Marie-Louise von France and Aliana Jaffe wrote some other, other contributions. Um, so those would be a, a starting point. I mean, it's not young Jung is, well, I mean, his more complex works are certainly not easy. Technological yes um but uh but it's it's you get, oh, the other, the other simple ones are um um modern man in search of a soul the, the divided self I mean those are, are relatively simple compared to the more abstruse um works yeah.
0: uh okay, so to bring it back uh speaking about this underworld or more specifically this spiritual guide he encountered um you know, I, I, like to consider myself a pretty open person. So in this relationship I spoke to earlier of the friend that's gone down this anthropo anthroposophy path, I, I did the practices for a year and I was, you know, I was like, yeah, okay. You, I value your opinion. I'm going to try this out and be open to it. And, you know, after six months or longer of, uh, doing these very disciplined practices with the imagination and there's some dream work involved and just kind of opening up different senses internal and external. And um, I got to this point where in my mind, I was always carrying another figure, but it would take different shapes. So at one moment, you know, it might be a small girl kind of, hunched forward sad and crying and you know at another moment it might be like a stern father and it kind of highlighted visually Mm -hmm. some internal emotions or experiences that Mm -hmm. did act as quite a guide or illuminated my mind and emotions in this interesting way
1: yeah okay and um I mean, if I may use the word, how real did you perceive those figures to be? However you interpret the word real.
0: Um, Yeah. Real is, uh, it's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. I mean, our dreams are real. Everything's real. Like it's. Dreams are real. Yes. yeah. I had this dream.
1: This dream was real. Yeah. So yeah. Parents tell their parents, Children have nightmares. They tell their parents, parents say it was only a dream, but well, it wasn't only a dream. It was a dream.
0: Yeah, exactly. You no, had yeah, this I dream, it was real,
1: it's real, you know. Yeah, I um, appreciate that. And I mean, one of the, one of, what, what Jung says is, one of the interesting things this guy, this a guide, Philemon, taught him that the reality of the psyche, what he called the psyche is real. It's not an illusion a fabrication. I mean, it, there is this other level of reality with me sorry at the level of the universe which right. is real it's it's actually real and jung journeyed into it i mean which is what the hero's journey is you journey into this um into this other world i mean it's sometimes called the underworld which is a strange term because i mean most spiritual traditions would say that the the material level is the lowest level of reality. Sure. Flip it. Yeah. So the (laughs) psyche would appear to be something like, well, in, in, in the Aeneid, Aeneas goes into the underworld and he meets spirits. Well, most people wouldn't think that spirits live in the underworld. They live in a sort of a level slightly above us. They, leave sure. the body they leave the body and they live in the next plane above whatever you want to call it the astral plane or whatever you want to call it or something like that so it's a strange sure. term to call it the underworld but nevertheless despite that in various traditions you go down into a cave and stuff like that so you know it's a so it's a slight strange um um it, we're using fusion, metaphors yeah. to explain yes, yeah, it's just, levels, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah 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 so it's often called the descent into the underworld but it seems to be going up into the next level to me anyway you know bit. sure well, sure whatever you understand by that, yes.
0: Right yeah, interesting so I'm becoming conscious of our time. you've been okay. very generous with yours okay.
1: um, well, been a pleasure
0: yeah i I think maybe I'd like to just cover one more topic which uh is just a fascinating paradox and I think interests we both share and you know speaking to the practicality of whether this our views really matter is this helping us live a more peaceful life i don't know we'll get into that but the subject is this idea earlier we spoke of this relative and ultimate world and with this ultimate world everything kind of dissolves um And then after that, we started talking about dreams and this creator or soul or self kind of having this free expression within each of us humans, you know, and in Buddhism, you hear this idea of no self or emptiness, meaning empty of any self entity And I think a lot of people look at this and that's a hard paradox to juggle Um, because, you know, we may meet the ultimate, we may meet God, but at the same time we see this divide. You know, I, John, I'm not you, Graham, you have your own dreams, your own creator, impulses, whatever we want to call them what is this self or this soul that, uh, appears to be there. So I don't know if you want to open up that discussion more,
1: you know, um, I, well, I'll, I'll address that briefly. Then I'll go back to the thing that you were just saying just before that, perhaps, um, yeah. I mean, well, I, what's interesting to me is, I mean, the Western traditions tend to say that we have a soul. I, which you could argue is a self, an ultimate self, not the self that we experience down here, but there is a, an ultimate manifestation of our self, which we call in Christian and Western traditions of the soul. And you could argue that, as you say, Buddhism claims that there is no self and stuff like that. Um, well, one other thing is, um, does it actually affect your spiritual practice in any way? I mean, if you're a Christian meditating, and a Buddhist mate meditating, does that affect your spiritual practice in any way? You're both trying going for the same goal. Uh, I, I'm guessing, I've, ne- I've never heard a, a Buddhist explain to me how it, what possible difference it makes, whether you believe you have a self or whether you don't believe you have a self. I mean, you still appear to have a self. I mean, who is it that's choosing to meditate? Who is it that wants to meditate? Who is it that wants to you know, change their consciousness? If it's not, it, is that self an illusion or is it not an illusion? It still appears to us that it's a self that's doing the same practice. So what is it? what does it ultimately matter? Um, and to go back to your um, earlier thing about everything dissolves when you get to ultimate reality, um, this is again a, a well, it's a, not a contradiction, it's a, a different perspective. So the East, the Eastern traditions seem to suggest that when, when the goal is to free liberate the consciousness from needing to reincarnate. So it's trying to escape the world in very simple, loose terms. Whereas the Western traditions, which I'm more familiar, and which makes more sense to my own understanding, is that spirit is trying to bring itself downwards. So in loose Christian terms, it's trying to create heaven on earth. It's right. Spirit is trying to make matter more spiritual. So it's like a cosmic alchemy is trying to turn the the lead into gold it's trying to the, the one goal is to bring spirit down into the material world and to transform the material world right. um, rather than escape from it so i mean ultimately once that's happened everything may be reabsorbed and gone back but before before the universe you know um sucks itself back up into itself and we go back to the ultimate nothingness you No, know, the purpose is to for spirit to manifest itself in the material universe is my perspective yeah no, and I, you know, I'm... So in another very, way of putting that is what we do down here actually matters. We're absolutely. not trying to escape the world. We're not trying to escape the world. We're given work to do down here, you know, and that's important.
0: Absolutely. No, I agree there. And there's almost, yeah, I see in the practicality of this notion of self, I I see two sides to this story because, you know, we bring this, Christ, this very selfless human, into this picture, um, there's an idea of, you know, if you don't have a self, what do you have to give away? And so, you know, with like our own personal work, our spiritual work, our intellectual work, whatever it is, I need to build myself up in some sense so I can give to others, you know. Uh, so I find that frame useful you know who is it that's giving away and who is it that's so yeah there is a very useful practical application there of self now on the other side and you know in some of our exchanges on medium we've you know i spoke to this but i do see this trap when we hold this idea of self, I think sometimes it can be really easy to fall into egoism and it becomes very isolating because we do see ourselves as this separate entity from the rest of the world. And so now there's distance between us and all the spiritual objects around us. Um, Now, of course you can, Remain awake to that and curb that tendency to fall into the ego and that isolation. But yeah, what I found useful with the Buddhism and the idea of non self is that it kind of brings you more to this intuitive level where, you know, we don't just dissolve into nothingness and you know we stop helping the people around us and we stop living our our lives but we start embodying this place of compassion and love and connection and you know sympathetic joy uh that is quite natural and intuitive the ego kind of falls away and it's almost like you're operating from the lens of god rather than from yourself. So that's the only kind of issue I see there in that Western frame of okay. yeah. stepping um, into a soul or self. But.
1: Yeah, I don't think that you need to adopt a Buddhist perspective to try and do that. I mean, um, it's, sure. it's a phrase that I I, mean, I, I don't use it in my writings, but it's something I'm, I, I'm quite keen on, is trying to see things from the point of view of God. know yeah what would it what what would this stuff down here look like if we could if we were up there looking down you know that's a a very important way of looking at things you know i mean Um, all, all, all sorts of political questions environmental questions all these things that people get obsessed with you know and are very politically engaged with i mean what does it look like you know up there you know so you have um people on the extreme right in politics and people on the extreme left who as you say perceive themselves as different but actually, right. they're all part of the same process. Right. So what does it mean, you know, that people with completely opposing views are all part of the same process? They're all aspects of the ultimate, ultimate ground of being. Yeah. Which is oh. with, um, working its way through this um, process.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with you there. And So, yeah, I, I appreciate both of those Western and Eastern lenses. And it's just, I think having both of them in sight is useful for navigating your own experience you know if you tend to fall into that egoism maybe yeah okay try out this other frame and you know maybe if you lack motivation in that other frame oh well let's move over into this more self-oriented frame and so yeah uh anyway i think we've kind of come to the end of our time again okay. I, you've been really generous with yours yep. and
1: you'd be very kind to invite me
0: yes and maybe we'll do this again in the future i i, okay. I really enjoyed it I
1: should you say wish have, okay yeah,
0: a lot to talk about okay. anyway thanks thank you so much graham take care thanks so much
1: john thanks Bye bye